I'm someone who loves trying out different makeup looks, but doesn't really wear much on a daily basis, so I like to focus on making sure I have high quality staples. And whether you like a fresh face, full glam, or somewhere in between, you've probably seen Thrive Cosmetics Viral Tubing Mascara. I've certainly seen it everywhere, you know the one in the turquoise tube? So that mascara, along with all of Thrive Cosmetics beauty products, are certified 100% vegan and cruelty-free, which I look for in makeup, and they've got excellent quality to match. And something I didn't know from all the mascara videos I've seen is that for every product sold, Thrive Cosmetics donates either that same product, another product that is needed more, or a monetary donation. They've worked with over 500 nonprofits to help with a wide range of causes like supporting cancer survivors, people experiencing homelessness, education access, and so much more. Knowing that makes me feel even better about using their products. And I do enjoy using them. Like I said, I like having high quality staples, and so my favorites are products that are multi-purpose, like the Brilliant Eye Brightener. It comes in a bunch of colors, and I like using them as eyeliner, eyeshadow, and even highlighter. Thrive Cosmetics is luxury beauty that gives back. Right now, you can get an exclusive 20% off your first order at thrivecosmetics.com thrive. That's Thrive Cosmetics, C-A-U-S-E-M-E-T-I-C-S, dot com slash thrive for 20% off your first order. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America NA, member FDSE. It's time for the Life Writing Podcast with your hosts, authors and screenwriters Stephen Barnes and Tanana Reeve Du. All about creating the project of your dreams while living a balanced artist's life. Be the hero or heroine of your own story. Sponsored by LifeWritingPremium.com. Get ready to write for your life. Welcome to the Life Writing Podcast, where married authors and screenwriters Stephen Barnes and Tanana Reeve do talk about writing during stressful times, breaking into Hollywood, and balancing life. Every week, we'll share more tips on how to build a better life while you create your dream projects. Even if it's only at the rate of one sentence a day. Life writing is the application of the tools of writing to life and the tools of life to your writing. Yay, there it is. You know, it's an imperfect <laughs> it's an imperfect world, my dear. And can I turn it off now is the question. <laughs> yes, you can. It keeps going to a different screen. Hey, okay. Thank you, guys. Thank you. Woo, quiet down. I may not. Yeah, that's that's a lot. So... Hey, honey. I'm glad we're back with a guest. We have a, a great guest today, Mark Bernardin. But I wanted to make a, a special note. We don't get nearly as many voicemails as I would like to on the podcast. So if you hear something that you like, or, you know, even if you hear something you don't like, leave us a voicemail at www.speakpipe. Speak as in speak, pipe as in your kitchen pipe.com slash life writing podcast. And we will play your voicemail on the air. How have you been doing, my dear? I've got three weeks until hopefully I'll be going to Manila. Yay. I've got three weeks to finish the, to turn in the next draft on the Star Wars novel. And so, and, and we're nailing down some family stuff with our son. So it's all, everything's going in the right direction. I'm still, you know, learning and growing and finding ways to, to stay as clean with my motivations and actions as possible. So I have to be careful during this period. And everything feels good. I mean, I had a, an important conversation with the editor on uh, the Mace Windu novel called The Glass Abyss. Hey, let's celebrate that. <laughs> That's our What's Going On music. Woo! 
okay, that's you know that's okay, our what's going on music. Sorry, but so, but I didn't mean to interrupt your story. <laughs> no, it's okay. So it's just looking at, at at what's going to be called for. There are going to be physical things that are important, just fitness and flexibility and coordination, so that I can go to this week long martial arts conference and and get the most out of it. This is there's emotional stuff. This is the fulfillment of a lifetime dream. I'm either going to be able to organize myself to get it, or I'm not going to be able to because of past errors and I will have, I will get a lesson. And so, you know, one way or the other, I'm going to learn. I prefer if I can go and and do this thing, but worst case scenario is still a matter of, I've had the motivation to get some things cleaned up, just couldn't get them all cleaned up in time. So it's, it's playing an interesting game to be ready for whatever, whatever happens, but then that's the warrior path. In terms of career things, I feel really good about what this year has to offer us. The book feels like it's in a good place. And, you know, we've been talking about what screenplay we're going to work on next. And frankly, I think that, I think that the, the, the screenplay that I'm going to be researching in Manila is probably the next thing because I'm going to want to jump on that when I get back mm-hmm, mm-hmm, uh, because mm-hmm. I want to do that book too. So that's, that's me. So I'm feeling, I'm feeling pretty solid. You know, how about you? That's an interesting pattern. They write the script as a collaboration as we did with the Bear Creek Lodge script, but then it's a, yours will be a solo novel for you. And mine is a solo novel for me. It's just interesting that we find different ways to contribute to each other's vision, find different ways to disperse the stories. And on that note, I spent my weekend doing some lettering, a lettering draft. I barely know what that is. (laughs) And also some revisions on that short script, that short vampire script we wrote for the Shook Anthology. Learning as I go, you know, like we, you got to pick one action for the panel, (laughs) you know, it's it for the screenwriter. I think that's the toughest transition for me is that it's like static. So you have to like freeze frame, freeze frame. And I'm used to seeing my characters in motion. And that's probably the, the biggest struggle for me in comic writing, but I love learning. And one of the ones, the one I was doing the lettering for is for Hornsack, you know, So I'm really happy about his guidance. And I'm using the lessons I learned from working on the comic with him, which is called Moondogs, to work on the new comic that we did for the Shook Anthology. So it's like you said, it's all about lessons. I think lessons not only keep us sharp, they keep us young, young at heart. You know, I I like just learning. So if I can get paid to learn all the better, that's been my whole screenwriting career. You know, much as when we're teaching... You know, we tell people to, you know, write stories and send them in and to have less, to have, not have attachment to a particular story or a particular action other than doing the very best you can every time. It's every time you do the best you can, but you can't get stuck on the reactions you're going to get from the outside world. All you can do is the best you can. How yeah. the world will respond to that is what the world does. True. Uh, and so almost every day, I mean, there's one of the questions I ask myself is, where do I need to grow as a person? And quite often, the best way to grow is I have to trust my process. I have to trust that if I do certain things every day, that the results are going to be the best they can do given the situation. I can't do better than the best I can do. Nobody can do better than the best they can do. So worrying about how the world responds to it you know, it's it's useful to kind of notice where you are, whether or not you're you're getting off the path. But what you kind of want is a situation where you're just driving down the road, enjoying a Sunday afternoon. You're you're going to where you're going, and you're noticing the territory, and you're having good conversations with the people in your car, and you're not going off the road. So I think that a lot of the the techniques that I talk about for enhancing creativity and producing work and constantly improving those things are all about wanting to have the best Sunday afternoon drive that we can possibly have. Uh, you are. That's that's well, what I think. I'm loving your your Sunday afternoon drive image and analogy every piece of that i'm ready if you are to bring yeah, in our guest absolutely we have a great guest. so mark bernadin is a wga award winning television writer producer who's worked on star trek picard carnival row treadstone castle rock 
where I believe you won your WGA award for the Castle Rock, Critical Role, The Legend of Vox Machina, Masters of the Universe, Revelations, and Alphas. In an earlier life, he was a journalist, another refugee from journalism for the Los Angeles Times, The Hollywood Reporter, Playboy, and Entertainment Weekly, big, big names. In comics, he's an inkpot-winning writer of Adora and The Distance, Genius, The Highwaymen, and Monster Attack Network. And I just know this because I follow the socials that he's a, a friend of Kevin Smith, because I just see him in pictures with Kevin Smith all the time. So please welcome our guest, Mark Bernardin. Hey, welcome to the podcast. Let me ask you to unmute. Welcome to the party. And it's so good to have you here. Thank you for the invite. This is this is maybe the the warmest podcast virtual room I've come into in a while. Not that they're antagonistic, but it's never this sort of just this this warm cocoon of sort of married collaboration and mutual respect and 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 adoration. Like man alive, it's 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 a bomb for this rainy LA day. Man, Thank you. life is tough. Mark. We appreciate that. <laughs> the creative life is. You know, it's horrifying at times because we're doing something for a living that everybody would like to do. Everyone would like to do something they love doing and get paid well for it. So Mm -hmm. the competition and the stress and the amount of fear around it is just colossal. So finding ways to be as gentle as possible with our hearts and the creative part of ourselves, while at the same time being badass taskmasters. I mean... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> it's, yeah. that's, I, that's what I really like. To, I like to try to have both of those things going. And honestly, keeping our heads afloat in these stormy seas that are working in Hollywood. Even before I get to that, though, I want to talk about the stormy seas that were journalism. Because I left journalism a Ooh. long time ago, like 25 years ago when, when Steve and I got married. And since that time, I have watched that industry just get gutted. And we recently just had a huge number of layoffs again at the LA Times. So I'm curious about your background in journalism as a fellow traveler. Did you always plan to transition out? Because for me, it was that that safe degree that my parents, that safe job my parents wanted me to pursue. And I always knew I wanted to to write other stuff. But for you, did you start out just wanting to be a journalist? Or did you always know you wanted to be a screenwriter? Journalism was an accident. Journalism was, I always wanted to be a filmmaker. I always wanted to tell stories. You know, I went to, I'm, I I feel like we're of the same generation where my influences going into school and then coming out of school was like Spike Lee. I wanted to be Spike Lee and Steven Spielberg. Like if I could find some synthesis of those two things, that was the dream. And so I I went to this sort of liberal arts school in New York, didn't have a film program. They had a communication arts program. You know, they they had a film club that nobody picked up the camera of. It was was this weird, like I was the one guy who had like the 60 millimeter camera in the film club uh, because the school was built to turn out TV people and not like writers or producers, but like cameramen and editors for local news and sports in New York. Uh, And that was that was the move. Um, I didn't want to do that. I didn't I didn't get much joy in that, but I wanted to, you know, make stuff up for money. And then uh, there was an internship. I needed last three credits to graduate. It was at a, a magazine called Starlog Magazine. And they were the same people who published Fangoria Magazine. And I was an intern for a summer. They offered me a job. I stayed there for like three years, working on both Fango and Starlog and Comic Scene and any old random licensed book that they published. And then a friend of mine was at Entertainment Weekly and says, hey, they like you. They would like you. You're a nerd. They like nerds. You should apply for a job here. And I did. And I was there for like 13 years. And so like journalism became a like the door that was open was the door that I walked through. And, you know, at EW, like, again, I'm an old enough person that I was there for the transition between VHS to Laserdisc to DVD. You know, mm-hmm. I got the Internet while I was working. Like I got my first email address at Starlog, you know, right? it's the that was the transition. And so, you know, being there and learning to do it and learning to tell stories with efficiency and with speed, you know, to, to your point, Stephen, of, of learning to be emotionally invested and then let go of that thing. Journalism taught me that from the jump, which is, hey, we're a weekly magazine. You have to do the best you can possibly do in five days and then let it go because the editors have to do it. And then then they go to the world and you can't change it at that point. So like deep emotional investment and a clean break. You know, it was in um, print, too. <laughs> when people ask me what kind of writing classes they should take, 
for fiction. What I generally, what I've said, and I, I am prepared to defend this, is that I don't suggest writing classes. I suggest that people study journalism and acting. Mm. You know, and then you know, read and write their butts off because I have just noticed a disproportionate number of writers were journalists. I think they learn discipline. They learn, you know, to use language, to describe situations, to research and so forth and so on. And acting teaches you character from the inside out as opposed to the outside in. You know, the mm -hmm. what is the being and then what will their being's behaviors be? Whereas a lot of writers just try to say, well, I need them to, to have these behaviors. What kind of person might have those behaviors? And I think that that can be non-optimal. So, you know, I'm not surprised that you you came from journalism, buddy. Yeah, I mean, it was, yeah. and I was also, and I remember talking to a friend about this the other day, is that I think that we are the first generation that ever saw a movie twice, because you couldn't before. My mother's never seen a movie twice until she got VHS. Mm -hmm. But like, if you saw, you know, Raising the Sun in 1968, that was the only time you saw it. It never replayed on TV. You could never go. I mean, maybe you went back to the movies, but you didn't have access to it. Right. You right. know, and so we're the first generation, really, like, you know, I was born in 71, you know, that came of age in a world in which you could rewatch a movie a lot. And not you only watch what you wanted. On demand. Yeah. We watch so movies now. on demand. And then we can hear, read articles or hear interviews with the filmmakers about how they did it. I, you know, I see that on the other side of this generation, film and film is also matured as a medium in the sense that you can put any image on screen now. That simply mm -hmm. wasn't true for 40 years ago, 30 years ago. And so I think now we're going to start seeing what movies can actually be. And I think that it's going to blow minds. You know, and it might not be, you know, I might not be the one to create that. It might be some 10-year-old kid who's growing up right now who's going to be the first one to look over the edge and say, oh, they never thought about this. You know, it's it's oh, it's going to be fun. All good things to celebrate the times we're in. What a lovely moment in history. Absolutely. But also, yeah, it is a lovely <laughs> moment in history. And, and speaking of history, this is the best transition I could come up with. <laughs> You're a Star Trek guy. And by the way, that internship you described Sounds like the coolest internship ever. When I was right out, I had a, an internship at the Wall Street Journal. I mean, you know, no offense, but that's not as much fun. <laughs> it's like what you were doing. And then, of course, you 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 moved into, I don't know if this is actually in the right order, but I want to talk about Star Trek now because mm -hmm. I just read today that your favorite Star Trek episode was Far Beyond the Stars. And this gentleman right here, wrote the novel, the novelization of that episode, Far Beyond the Stars. So yay for you two and Star Trek Picard. So you were a supervising producer by that time. You had worked your way up. I was, yeah. I started as a, I was a staff writer twice. I did the thing that, that luckily it was not punitive because I feel like that does happen to, to black writers more often than not, which is they ask you to repeat levels. You know, either you're part of a diversity program and you kind of come in under, you know, the auspices of like, well, we're not sure if you're a real writer. You're just going to have to be here. We don't know if you proved your worth. So do it again. Mm -hmm. um, my thing was I was on Alphas. It was my first ever TV writing gig. I did not come back for the second season of Alphas. I went back to journalism for four years and then got the call for Castle Rock. And wow. in that intervening time, it was like, well, you're going to repeat that level again. Like... And I was like, that's fine. It feels like I'm breaking in again. I don't have a problem with it. It's, it was not a continuous sort of bridle that had been placed on me. Like you're going to be doing this for a while. It was, you broke in once, you broke out. Now you're breaking back in again. Now we start the real, the real trajectory. So and Castle so, Rock was your way you broke back in? Because uh, I, I loved Castle in. First of all, I loved Castle Rock. Loved it. And then you ended up winning an award. So what a great entry, re-entry to screenwriting. It was, it was kind of wonderful, you know, like it, it and and a, a friend of mine, the guy who who sort of made all that happen had been my assistant a thousand years ago at EW. And he had went on to work for Sam Shaw and Dusty Thomason, who were the Castle Rock showrunners on their previous show, Manhattan. And they had brought in my friend, Scott Brown. And, you know, it's like, yeah, hey, we're doing this show. It's based on the Stephen King world, but it's, it's all of it together. It's what if where's where's the town that everything bad happens in? We're centering around Andre Holland's character, and we don't have any black writers on staff, and we don't have any real deep nerds on staff. 
And so my friend Scott was like, oh, well, then you should talk to Mark because he's all of those things. Like he's he's he he meets you at the junction of your need. And so I met with those guys and then they offered me the job. And it was it was this wonderful sort of reeducation in a how TV works from the inside. Be the the sort of mechanics of running a writer's room and 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 creating that kind of story, and the, a reminder for myself, having grown up a horror fan, I'm not sure how much I am anymore, only because horror has become a genre that all too often relies on manipulation. And I hate a jump scare. I am not a jump scare kid. And so much of modern horror has become about fetishizing the jump scare. But mm. I go back to the Romero and the Raimi and the Carpenter and, you know, like the sort of old school. Situational the, the horror, let's call it. Situational I think, horror. I like, suspect that jump scares became really popular with television and PG-13 horror, you know, where mm. you don't actually have the existential dread that you're going to see or experience something that could not be put on television. You know, the that is very difficult when you do not have anything real. You know, there's not going to be a moment of violence that is that is stomach churning. There isn't going to be something that is is beyond what you're prepared to, to look at. All you have is booga booga. You know, yeah. booga booga. You know, here's another boom, and here's a musical stick. Boom. Yeah, <laughs> yeah I know. <laughs> a musical cue. You're scared for no reason. Like, ah, yeah. what was that? Yeah. I just I I never I never liked that feeling of sort of physical anxiety. I liked emotional anxiety. I liked cerebral anxiety. I loved the Wes Craven. Like I'm going to claw inside your head and find out really what makes you scared, and I'm going to make you live in that space for longer than you want to. That I'm here for all day. Oh, that's lovely. It, you know, but it was the like the like the mirror closes and there's a reflection of it. Like I just I don't I don't want to feel this but I'd like to feel it in here. But so I understood all of that stuff. Like having been that kid who was reading Fangorian Cine Fantastique and all those magazines. And, and there are rules to horror, just as there are rules to sci-fi. And they are, they exist for real and for a reason, knowing that some of those rules needed to be imposed on a show like Castle Rock, I think was helpful for, you know, for both me as finding a place on that show and, and finding some use. I think it's, it's always helpful, especially as a younger writer to discover where you can be of help. Oh what my is God, going yes. to be your superpower? What's the thing you can add to this process that nobody else here is adding? And the earlier you can identify it and deploy it, the better off you'll be. Are you ready to shop? Rakuten's Big Give Week is back. Get 15% back at hundreds of stores. And it's all happening this week, May 6th to May 13th. It's the perfect time to shop for everything on your list for spring and summer, like clothing, outdoor gear, and travel. I know I'm using this week to stock up on some warmer weather essentials at Ray-Ban and Ulta, and I love that Rakuten even helps me save on travel at sites like Hotels.com. Rakuten really is the best way to shop, and you can save even more by stacking cash back on top of deals. Plus, during Big Give Week, that cash back is bigger than ever. With Rakuten, membership is free. And when you sign up and shop today, you get an extra 10% cash back boost. That's an extra 10% cash back on top of the 15% cash back. You won't see higher cash back rates than these. Go to Rakuten.com or download the Rakuten app. R-A-K-U-T-E-N. Shoppers get it. Hey there, this is Justin Bartha. I made a funny new podcast, King of the Egg Cream. It has the greatest cast in the history of podcasts with actors like Louis Black. I'm torn by my feelings for two women. Bobby Cannavale. You can eat it, or if someone hits you, you can put it on your cut. Melanie Linsky. I wonder what these marvelous things are that look just like boiled chicken feet. Jason Ritter. I can break things and pick locks and kill people. Michael Stuhlbarg. The whole point is to inspire people that they should make themselves better. Ari Grainer. No, don't whet its appetite. What are you, an idiot? Me, Justin Bartha. That's not just any egg cream, that's a Lemke's special. And all narrated by the hilarious Richard Kind. This is the story of Harry Dalowitz. And how he rose from nothing to become New York's King of the Egg Cream. So if you like funny true stories, come listen to King of the Egg Cream, available wherever you get your podcasts. You know, I had an opportunity on a couple different occasions to talk to Wes Craven about New Nightmare. Mm. Uh, and what he did there and what he was, what he was observing, that people had leached 
the real power out of horror imagery by making it jokey, by using jump scares and stuff like that. And he wanted to go back to that that primal power, the thing that where we use horror to help us deal with existential issues. Tanonri, you talked about this a lot in terms of where you think horror gets its power from and, and how to how to take emotional issues and and use them to craft these stories. What what is what is your position? I have so many thoughts right now. First of all, I'm so <laughs> jealous about your conversations with Wes Craven, because the only one I ever had with him was that thing at Angela Bassett's party where she introduced him as my director. And I said, oh, my soul to keep is set up at Fox Searchlight and Rick Famuyi was writing the script. And he said, is that what you want? And I was tongue tied. And that was the whole conversation. (laughs) So I'm mad, okay, that you had that, but also happy for you. And secondly, absolutely. Even as I'm thinking about Castle Rock, just to make it relevant. I mean, Sissy Spacek as a woman who's suffering dementia or Alzheimer's, right? That is realness. That is the real horror, especially for people like me and the sandwich generation. Our son is 20, but my dad is 89. Our feeling on a daily basis, caretaking the, the horror of watching a loved one for get themselves, forget their lives and the and, and the empathy of what it must be like from the inside. So you take that, which is the real life horror, and you turn it up to 11 and you create a, an intersection with the supernatural. I mean, the real life horror is the doorway that lets the, the supernatural, if it is supernatural horror, into the story. It's like an invitation mm-hmm. into the story. And that's where all my story ideas begin. And I'm I'm curious, and I love what you were saying, Mark, about Castle Rock and finding your your superpower in the writer's room, because Steve and I talk about this a lot after our experience in the Crystal Lake room early last year, is especially as new people in the writer's room, it's like a it's like a fast-paced basketball game. Like the kind of <laughs> development we've been doing was like a football game. <laughs> you know, you like you get a few yards here, a few yards there, they stop the action. <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. basketball is constantly in motion. And yes, what what was the most important thing you you learned about either the process or about yourself while you were in that Castle Rock room about to get your award? I think it's a thing that I still carry with me every room that I go into is I approach every room as if I'm the lowest person on the totem pole. And what that offers me is a an ability to kind of read everybody a little bit you know, to understand where people are coming from, from an emotional perspective, from a just background perspective, from a how they like to operate perspective. I don't assume that I am, you know, quote unquote, more important than anybody else in the room, because that's not how a good room works. You know, a good room is a is a benevolent dictatorship where there's one person at the top of it who allows everybody to kind of contribute ideas and then they decide. But it is never like best idea wins. If, you, if you're in a room where best idea wins, at least you have an opportunity to contribute in a real way. But it's just realizing that everybody there got there their own separate way. They all worked really, really hard and they all have something of value and find a way to be of value. You know, it's the, it's the John Wick thing. I serve, I'm, I, I'm to be of service. You know, how can I be of service to you? And for me, like, it's, it is both being a little bit of a, of a mind sweeper. I've, I've had showrunners who can read my body language well enough to be like, what's the problem, Mark? You have that look about you. Like, <laughs> you've got that, like, thousand-yard stare. Your arms are crossed. You should, you're doing the thing. And finding out where problems are, but being able to pitch solutions to them is what a showrunner really wants. It's the it's the pitch don't bitch because it's super easy to throw grenades and say this doesn't work. But it's not helpful. Right. The helpful part is like this isn't working for me. Let me tell you why. And here's two ways maybe we can try and fix it. Or the, and and they're both awful ideas, but maybe somebody else will have a better idea. But it is TV writing is such a structural exercise it is such this ongoing locomotive especially if production is behind you you know and it's like oh yeah in two weeks somebody's gonna be building a set that's based on this script and two weeks from now we're gonna be in post on the episode that that guy right in front of you was writing so like if you're if you're if you're being chased by production and you're trying to beat into post then how can we be of service and how can we be of service quickly because we can't just break things to break things we have to be Um, rebuilding as we go oh my god i love everything you just said so where does star trek come in Star Trek comes in because Star Trek was the first TV show that I remember watching and caring about. 
the next generation was my jam, you know, because it hits you. It hit me at what, 12, 13 years old. Like I sure I was a Knight Rider kid. I was an Airwolf kid. I was an 18 kid. But like, whatever. I don't you know, they were not designed really for for deep investment. But Star Trek always was like. And so I was a next gen kid. Picard was my captain. I I had an internship before my internship at Starlog on Deep Space Nine when I was still in college. I won a writing for television fellowship and the prize was spent a summer in LA. Oh my God. Um, I spent two weeks, two weeks on Brooklyn bridge, which was sponsored by Uber productions. And then I spent another two weeks on the next generation, which turned into four weeks, which turned into six weeks. And next gen was already shooting. I think it was like season eight, like times arrow was the, the, the premiere of that season. But that was the season where, that was the summer where they were prepping to shoot season one of Deep Space Nine. And so they had built a promenade, they had shot the pilot, but then they were just breaking the first seasons of stories. And so that's where kind of the juice was happening. And so I got to know Iris Stephen Bear very well. I got to know like some of his, his lieutenants very well. I got to sit in on pitches. I got to pitch ideas, none of which were very good. Um, the potential of what DS9 could have been and eventually did become was like, it wasn't there in season one. Star Trek always had problems with season one. Like it doesn't find itself, especially with, with DS9. It got better the less hair Avery Brooks had. Did you get to hang with Avery Brooks at all? I never got to meet Avery. I never got to meet Avery. The only person oh. I got to meet was Nana Visitor, and that's because she came in for like a hair test. Hmm. Because during the span between shooting the pilot and, and episode one, she cut her hair. And everyone was like, what is happening? You were not supposed to do that. And she did it anyway. And that's the Kira that we would know is the short hair kind of you know, Spitfire Kira and not the like weird 60s Bob Kira that was in the pilot. <laughs> but so that was my first Star Trek experience was like reading scripts, pitching ideas, listening and absorbing and like getting to meet like Michael Piller. And I met, I think Ron Moore was on Next Gen at that point. Like Ron Moore and Renee Echeverry had shared an office and they were like, hey man, come in. We got a centipede arcade game in here. You can play it whenever you want it. Because I was like 19, I was eight, 19 years old. I was a kid. And, and so the warmth of that family, the, the commitment to that quality and the, and the trade and the craft always stuck with me. And so getting the full circle of some 20 years later, sitting down with, with Terry Metalis as he was pulling together his season two room, he's like, so you're a Star Trek fan? I was like, bro, I taught myself how to play the inner light theme on the guitar. He's like, okay, yeah, no, it's real. <laughs> I get it. And it was, it was wonderful. You know, even, even the parts that were awful, which was, it was my first pandemic room. Like mm. that was the beginning of lockdown. I was in the physical office for like three weeks and then we shut it down in March. And then the rest of it was online. And, you know, that is not the ideal process. It's doable. It's possible, but it's not, it's not the, the, the preferred, at least for me, way to collaborate with people. Tell me, reason. tell me the worst things about it. Why? Why do you feel that that is non-optimal? I mean, I would tend to agree with you. Yeah, we drove in an hour every day. To have yeah. a virtual as opposed to live room. I mean, for me, it's that a writer's room needs to feel as if it's a safe space. And that safety really only comes with familiarity. It only comes with, you know, the time you have spent with the people in that room not doing the work. You know, it's the, the walk from the parking garage to the office. It's the walk you take after lunch when you're feeling a little heavy with, you know, in and out because your showrunner likes in and out. It's the walk back to the car. It's the, it's the time just spent kind of just BSing around because that's where you begin to build those ties with people. That's the, the intangible, we are now a group of friends. Even if this is a friendship that will last the length of a summer camp and we will mm -hmm. go off in our lives and make another group of friends and be incredibly close knit with them for four months and then do it again and again and again. But on Zoom, the minute the Zoom clicks on, you feel the need to be working. It somehow has this jump starting ability to like, all right, we're here. Let's do it. And you're talking over people and you can't really read body language and there's you're never sure when to pitch and when like it's it is just imprecise in the way that. It, it removes the intangibles of physical proximity, of just understanding and feeling rhythm and feeling like he has an idea. I can see it in his leg. His leg is tapping on the ground. And that's the thing he does his tell when he's got a pitch. You can't read that kind of stuff on no. Zoom. You just can't. And so it's it's doable and it's possible, but it's not ideal. The gift it gives you, though, 
is access to people who can't be in LA. True. You know, I, I worked on, on this Marvel cartoon called eyes of Wakanda. And one of our writers was from South Africa and could be in the room every day. Granted for us, it was, you know, 10 to three for her. It was, you know, midnight to two, mm. but it was possible. And to have that access to, to that perspective, to have that access to that talent that ordinarily would be impossible to achieve is valuable, is incredibly valuable. And I don't think it's a thing we should completely leave in the dust as we return back to like the the in-person sort of the quote unquote way it was. So-called normal. You know, if I could just interject for a second, we've only had that one experience. And I agree with you. One of our writers for Crystal Lake was in London. So mm. absolutely great. And she had amazing creative ideas. I'm so glad she was in that room. At the very beginning though, Brian Fuller's second, uh, it's a guy named Jim Gray, worked on several series with him. We had never met him except on the Zoom. And he was mm -hmm. so intimidating to me on the Zoom. I don't know why. He came, there was something about him that came across as very serious and a little bit, like like I said, intimidating. But once he was in person in the room, totally different guy. I mean, just kind of a big, funny goofball. He was the one who would come Goofball with, is what came to mind. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it, it, because he, he was, Brian had to maintain control of the room. So mm -hmm. Brian could not be as much of a goofball as we've known him to be in, in, in private life. Right. So Jim would be the goofball side of Brian. And he, and the usefulness of that is that he would come up with crazy ideas, but he was crazy like a fox. Mm -hmm. It's very clear that he was coming up with crazy ideas partially because, you know something? One of these ideas will be reinterpreted by someone else in the room to be exactly what we need. If if you mm -hmm. go crazy enough, you're going to accidentally say something brilliant. And he but also he a little permission to do that. Yes, he as the second. I, you know, I never would have come up with some of the crazy stuff he was spouting. Yeah. You know what I mean? Because I was at like you said the bottom of the totem pole. Now, what was the big <laughs> joke that, that lasted for days that, that he came up with? What was that? Oh, I don't know if we could I will try to think of it. But oh, but anyway, yeah, it, was, it, was, it, was it was just great. I got your man. Yeah, that's, right, that's it. I got your man. Out of context. Okay. <laughs> that became a callback. All right. But you know, anyway. we laugh, we laughed for weeks about that. Yeah, but like that person is necessary in a room, yes. right? Just the yes. the pitch machine. Be like, listen, all of these are not calibrated. All these will not find their target. But I'm just going to keep throwing things out there. They're going to be crazy and harebrained and wild, and and we're not sure. I'm not sure if any of these make sense. But I'm going to pitch it anyway because somebody else might yeah, pick up that ball. How often is it that the idea that you think to yourself, this is stupid, other people look at that and say, my God, that's brilliant. I mean, that's happened many times. It's a, why, why that and the ideas you think are brilliant just land with Crickets. Crickets, you know, and, and the great showrunners can remember that stuff, will obsess over that stuff, and come back to you days later and say, you know that thing you pitched on Tuesday that didn't quite work? But I think maybe. And they will have a gloss on it that's different that gets it there, or at the very least, they won't let go of it. Right. You know, like nothing is wasted. Like that's yeah. that's the joy of a great writer's room is that all of this is fuel. All of this is 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 sauce for the goose. And and the goose is the thing we're here for. Like, let's just let's cook it just right. Mm, you know, you seem like a very positive person, Mark. So I almost hate to ask this question. <laughs> but <laughs> what was a situation that and you don't have to name, you know, specifics if it's in politic, but that kicked your teeth out, like one of those disappointments you get in Hollywood. I'm curious about like what those circumstances were and how did you shake it off and come out with that same positive attitude that you seem to have now? Well, I mean, I think the thing you have to be prepared for is that it's mostly failure. You know, like it, it's going to take you 10 scripts to write before you write the one that'll get you a job. It'll take you, you know, a dozen pitches in the room before you land the one that'll be in the show. You know, most of it is not working. You will you will go out for any number of of, of staff jobs on shows. You're not going to get most of them. That is just the reality of of the job, of the life. I was I was lucky enough. This was this was this was a thing that did just predated the pandemic. But I was lucky enough to get hired to write a TV adaptation of Fast Color. The the mm. Julie Hart movie with Google and mm -hmm. Bathara and Lorraine Toussaint and Sanaya Sidney. I loved that movie when it came out. I, I shouted from the rooftops to anybody who could who would listen on Twitter and on podcasts and everywhere how, how much I loved that movie. My reps understood how much I loved that movie. And when 
this sort of wheels of time began moving, like two, three, four years later, an opportunity came up where where the production company who had it had a draft of the script that they liked but didn't didn't think was quite right. They needed a showrunner and they needed somebody to write episode two. And and I just balls to the wall. I was like, I want this job. I'm getting this job. This is come on. This is it. Like, and I showed everybody the history of my Twitter feed of like I've been here since day one. And I got the gig, which is amazing. And I got to work with Julia Hart and Jordan Horowitz and 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 the production company, which was uh, Juvie, Viola's production company. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, and like mm-hmm. they were incredibly supportive and Amazon was supportive. And like everything was going like as well as you can possibly hope that a thing could go. Uh-oh. And, and in the time between when I got this job and delivered the two scripts that were part of the contract, Amazon went from the network that made The Marvelous Mrs. Maisel to Lord of the Rings. Like we went from, we like tiny stories about people to if it's not a billion dollar show, we're not really interested. You know, mm. they shifted their scale. They just, they, they changed their mandate. And a show like Fast Color was not going to fit this new version of the mandate. It was uh. always going to be small. Even if it's four times the size of the movie, it's a small story about three generations of black women who are all mm. dealing with trauma that manifests in different ways. You know, and and even if we added a bunch of other elements to it to sort of widen the world and broaden the scope and increase the the level of kind of, you know, at some point we want this to feel like junior X-Men. So let's do it. It was never going to land on that same level as we're spending $200 million on a season of Lord of the Rings. They were just not in that business anymore. How close did you get before they pulled, pulled it? I mean, we delivered them two scripts and a Bible and we were like, we're ready to go. Like if you pull, if you pull the trigger, like we can assemble a room and go to work. Mm. And, and they just said, listen, like, this is all really great. We love it. You know, you're free to take it any place else, but this is just not the business we're in anymore. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, when you realize that the highest batting average in history was only a three, six, six. Yeah. You know, Ty Cobb, you know, so two thirds of the time, he, the best in the world, whoever was, was striking out. So if you can wrap your mind around that, that's part of the process. You do the best you can, you let it go. You do the best you can and you let it go. I think that people who can do that have the kind of temperament that can make it work in Hollywood or in the arts. If you don't have that, if you have to be precious about every idea, if you don't have the grit to get back up when you get knocked down, you probably want a day job. You probably want a career (laughs) doing something where you get a weekly paycheck. Yeah. I mean, and, and you're allowed, to, you're allowed to feel it, right? You should feel it. Like, you know, take that week, that two weeks and just feel every minute of what feels like rejection and loss and, and devastation. But that's the job, right? Like, that's why we put on the pads every day. And that's what the money is for. <laughs> you know, like, like it's I mean, you hurt. did get those two scripts. Let's not forget that part. Wait, so, listen, I got paid. Like, I've, <laughs> I've also spent, you know, years developing things that I never got paid for that never went anywhere. Right. But it's like, oh, there's just now a folder on the hard drive of like, oh, that might have been cool. But oh, well. And I'll strip mine when I need it later. to. Yeah. Absolutely. I remember in the first Star Wars book I wrote, I pulled an image from a story I wrote when I was in fifth grade. <laughs> Never too late. And I put it oh. right in that book. And you better believe I was laughing my butt off the whole time. The little kid part of me was saying, and that's right, Dad, nothing's ever wasted. <laughs> nope. Nope. There's there's some pilot that I wrote that I've just broken it apart and sold it for parts. Like that bit goes here, this bit goes there. I'm not even sure there's anything there there anymore. Well, uh, listen, with with comics, do you do you ever find yourself using material from your your scripts in comics or is that a different hat entirely for you? Sometimes I I do think that like, you know, a good idea is a good idea. I think there are some stories that are that are somewhat better suited for specific mediums, you know, and comics, I mean, listening to you wrestle with the 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 awkwardness of writing comic books is real. It is the hardest form I've ever written in because mm-hmm. it requires so much of you at the same time. Mm-hmm. You know, like you are a doing prose, right? You're a like explaining to a person what's in a panel. And if you're a good writer, you want that prose to kind of do some stuff. You know, you're also doing a shot list. You're also like, all right, well, I got to get, you know, 
Mace Windu from this side of the room to that side of the room. How many panels is that? Yes. It can be two. It can be oh one. It can be five. What's he doing along the way? What's the importance of taking time? Like the ability to manipulate the reader's experience in time on a page is somewhat unique. Like you can you can decide how long it will take a person to read a page of a comic book, unlike a page of a novel. You know, a person is going to read at their pace. But if I put 12 panels on this page, it's going to take you longer than if there's one. You know, mm. and so I need to know how to deploy that. You know, have how you, do you? Uh, have you read Scott McCloud's Understanding Comics? Yeah. Yeah. I read it a while back, but yeah. What do you think of that book? I I think of that book the same way I kind of think of like Sid Field's screenplay, which is like, here are the tools. It is not necessarily telling you how to use the tools. <laughs> You know, right. Here's a person who is helping you deeply thought about the form. Right. Like he deeply understands the form. I, I, I'm saddened that I haven't seen a ton of Scott McCloud comics other than like Zot, you know, but like, it's, it's the weirdness of here's a guy who understands it, but doesn't necessarily want to, to, to employ those same tools for his own. When he does, when he does create comics, are you impressed? I'll be honest. I haven't tracked very many of them down. Okay. Um, you know. So he sounds a little bit like Robert McKee then. I think that Robert McKee is transcendentally smart about story structure, but he has had limited success in actually writing and producing anything, getting anything produced. I think that that's, you know, it's possible to to have the flow part of your personality and the analytical part of your personality, and they're not always perfectly in sync. No, not at all. Not at all. And I think that, that again, the, the structure is important. It's, it's vitally important. But unless the emotional carriage, the emotional baggage you're using that structure to deploy is there, then it is just structure. You know? right. And so I think that, like, do you have a thing to say? Um, what's the best means and the, and the method for you to say it? And then how's the most effective way for you to say that? And that's you structure is effectiveness. Your, do you start your creative process wondering what it is you're trying to say, or do you d- discover that along the way? It depends on the thing. You know, like uh, so often for me, theme is a thing I discover on like the second or third draft. You know, like I, I, I end up being a, this world is cool, or this character is cool. What world is he in? You know, I, I end up going somewhere outside in as opposed to inside out. Right, Because I feel like Inside Out, for me, becomes a little – it gets squishy in places I don't want it to be squishy. I think that Inside Out doesn't really exist. What happens is that some writers have outside in at unconscious competence to the point they don't even think about it. That, that there's a certain integrity to what they do. It's like giving birth to a baby. They don't have to – you know, some of us, it's, it's more like put, assembling a little droid. And other people mm-hmm. like giving birth, but the the processes that make something biologically active and viable are all there. So I think that you have to be able to go from the inside out, from the outside in, and move back and forth between those approaches, or it's never going to be organic and it's never going to work as a story. You know, it's like I'm expressing myself, but what's the story? What what? How is this propulsive? How do all these things match? So it's the more skills you get to unconscious competence, the easier it is to create art. And I think that mm-hmm. that's, that's why artists have to work under pressure. I had, I had a couple of different people who I, I really trust saying something to the effect that mastery is the ability to create spontaneously under pressure. And the only way you learn to do that is by taking it a piece at a time and working it and working it and working it. Yeah, I mean, I think that that was another great gift that journalism gave me, which was, you know, the respect and and lack of fear of a deadline. Yes. You know, like I I thrive when somebody tells me I need it by Friday. Like, oh, you'll have it by Friday. There and, you go. And and it will do what it does. You know, it's it's gonna do what it do, baby. I don't know. Uh, yeah, <laughs> I don't know how it's gonna look Friday, <laughs> but you will be getting it on Friday. It's, it's interesting how many writers come in from other sub. If, Journalism is one in terms of self-published writers, marketing. It's interesting how many mm-hmm. people who are self-published, they they are business people. They know they're creating a product. They know how to find an audience. They know how to get that product to the audience. And because they have those practical kind of adult level skills, the little kid inside them that wants to say, you know, let's put on a show has a mm-hmm. safe place to play. Yeah. 
without running the joint, you know, which is what happens <laughs> when creatives don't have discipline. Listen, we we were both on a panel to raise money for the strike fund last year, mm-hmm. and the WGA and SAG have just been through tumultuous times trying to get Hollywood in line. But, you know, we just lost an executive. People are getting fired all over town. It also still feels like tumultuous times. I'm just curious about your thoughts on the state of Hollywood right now. Is that pipeline for you that got you on set, you know, from a writer to actually, are you, I don't know if you're showrunner level now, but if you're not, you're certainly close. Is I'm that knocking system on the door. <laughs> working? Is the system working or is it still jammed up but for different reasons now? The system is still broken, but I think more people realize that it's broken. Mm-hmm. I think I think putting it back on track is going to take a bit longer than we'd hoped it would. Mm-hmm. You know, as as the studios and the networks reinvent television, a thing that was working perfectly well ten years yes. ago that they abandoned and shattered, and now are very clumsily reassembling using the bones of an old dinosaur. Oh my God. Yeah. I bet Amazon's not doing that $200 million show thing anymore. I mean, they're not, they're still chasing IP like, you know, very aggressively, you know, and the things that are working for them are that. And and I think that that's still sadly par for the course. Everybody wants that book, that comic book, that reboot, sequel, prequel, whatever you want to call it. You know, I think, I think this year is going to be rough for a lot of people. I think there are less rooms than there used to be. I think there's less, you know, trigger happy green lighting happening than used to. I think the the race for everybody to have a streamer is over and everybody kind of realized that Netflix won. And so now readjusting under the, you know, meet the new boss, same as the old boss. And now and, and treating their own studios, and their product like their their arms dealers, which they always used to be, which is where's the networks? Let me feed the networks. Sony doesn't have a streamer. Sony doesn't want a streamer. Sony, like Sony is a country that doesn't want an army. I just want to bank tanks and sell them to you. Netflix, you want an army? Let me give you all of the tanks. You know, mm-hmm. and I think every studio used to be this way. Like, where are we selling it? ABC, NBC, Fox, CBS. CBS. Yeah. That's it. Then cable shows up. We have five more places to sell things to. But we don't need to own our own network. We just need to feed the networks. We pay, we give them product, they give us money. You know, they continue <laughs> to make money on that product. We get more money. It was working. Everybody, everybody got rich. Everybody made shows that were good. The the streaming wars became a, now there needs to be a Peacock and a Paramount Plus and a, and a whatever. Like, guys, AMC Plus was never going to really be viable. I You went after it because you felt you needed to. But ah, it's a really expensive way to lose lots and lots of money. And eventually just put those shows on other networks and other platforms like you were always going to. Mm. And so now we're just beginning to realize as Warner Brothers is putting all of the DC universe on Netflix, as there's a Batman show that that Bruce Tim and Ed Brubaker did that's not going to air on Max, that's going to air on Amazon first. Why? Because we can make money just selling the the tanks to the people who want tanks. Yeah, and I guess, actually, you know, I love that breakdown. Do you think that it's the Wild West and people just had to throw a lot of stuff at the wall and see what stuck? Or do you think that they should have actually been able to predict this because this pattern showed up in this arena over here? Why couldn't you see that that was going to happen again? I mean, to what degree do you consider this to be just the evolutionary process of media? I mean, I think that, that yeah, Hollywood is very good at making mistakes that they didn't need to make that other people made first. You know, okay. like they, they could have seen what music went through. And it's like, hey, remember when when they tried to make it illegal for you to download stuff and they criminalized it for a while and then they just opened the floodgates and then Apple showed up and said, hey, well, we'll sell your stuff online and then Spotify. Like there was there's a path of which some businesses endured this kind of evolutionary shift, learned from it, pivoted off of it and found some kind of level. I think that there was a a blindness to the way that Netflix was operating, which were they were they were purely based on growth. As long as they could get new subscribers, they didn't care anymore about anything. We'll give you whatever you want to make a show. We're just all about getting growth. And then they found that there's only but so many people in the world and they're in every country they could be in. And the subscribers, like the, the growth was beginning to dwindle. And suddenly, oh man, you're only going to get three seasons on that show. Oh man, that thing that we thought was really good. Here's the floor is lava. Like we're not making House of Cards anymore. We're making reality TV because we can't, we now longer don't need know how to justify 
the expenditure based on the growth we're not seeing anymore. And so despite the fact that they're still making money hand over fist, despite the fact that like if there are 200, 300 million Netflix subscribers giving them all $20 a month, that's $2 billion a month that they make just in money from, from subscribers. Like they're okay, but even still the growth was not there. And then the pandemic kicked uh, a hole in the side of everything, which the only thing that the only way that wall street could judge their stock price was the health of a streamer, as opposed to Disney used to get people on cruises and in theme parks and into movie theaters and buying records and stage shows. Like none of that exists anymore. All we have to judge the health of a company is by a streamer. So they all raced to that goalpost. And then we all went back to the world and they were stuck with these streamers that were hemorrhaging money. Oh my you know, gosh. I'm listening to you. He, he should be not only running a show, he should be running a network. It's no, like, well, but it possibly, speed, yeah. like, and, and certainly, certainly lecturing. I feel like I'm seeing that journalistic mind. It, it's like all these things could be articles that people are writing. So you've used you are playing chess and studying the board before the pieces are even placed on the board. You're asking, what can this piece do? And what does it mean to have these dynamics and so forth? And it's it's kind of predictable that you're the kind of mind that's going to succeed doing this because you're you're playing to win, buddy. Yeah, I'm not worried about you. I think you're going to be just fine. <laughs> yeah. Well, you are should you... talk to my mother, who's always worried about me. Uh, like, How is the life that you lead? <laughs> it is kind of hard to explain to people. Are you in a room now? I'm not in a room now. There's a there's a couple of possibilities on the horizon of things that could happen. There's a couple of contracts that I'm waiting on that yeah. that might result in that finally crossing that last Rubicon of going from co-executive producer to showrunner. You know, knock on wood, all of the things that I want to happen will happen. But I'm also incredibly prepared for them not to, which is right. why I'm still writing comic books. Yeah, that's why I took the I took the Mace Windu gig like it last January, knowing full well that this is going to be the strike job. <laughs> so that you're he's doing Mace Windu. What's the comics? Mace Windu gig? Yeah, he. D- uh, I wrote a four issue miniseries comic books for Marvel, Marvel and Lucasfilm, the Mace cool. Windu. Look at um, that, two Mace Windu guys. <laughs> like who? I, I never thought there'd be a world in which two of us who've written Mace Windu would like run into each other in the wild and be able to, <laughs> yeah, to compare I mean, notes. It's, it's I. When they asked me whether or not I'd do it, you know, I told the editor, I got one question. Can I give him a romance? And Lucasfilm said, okay. Nice. And I said, well, hey now. So, <laughs> you know, let me, my whole thing is I'm, I'm prepared to do my best to over deliver. If they're going to let me give him his humanity in that sense, I'm going to acknowledge that that was not what they had to say. Then, you know, I'm going to say thank you by delivering. I'm going to do I'm going to do my absolute best work on this because this might be the only opportunity I ever have to, to write for Sam Jackson, you know, and, uh, you know, it's it's, <laughs> you know, it's it's so much fun to develop the adult part of your personality sufficient to navigate the business so that the kid part of your personality can just friggin' play. I mean, just the best mm-hmm. playground in the world. But if if the adult is not taking care of business, your kid doesn't get to play. Yeah. You know, I, I, my, my experience was the same, was that, you know, Marvel's came to me. Like I had done a Darth Vader short story for their Darth Vader Black, White, and Red anthology. Like it's just a 12-page story, which was a blast because it's Darth Vader. I'm like, hell yeah, I'll write 12 pages of Vader. Why would I not do this? And I'm like, are you, have, are you curious? Are you interested in writing a, a Mace miniseries? I was like, can I do can I do midnight run with Mace Windu? And they said, yes. And I said, okay, I'm nice. Okay. That's cool. Yeah. I asked them, can I do your jumbo with Mace Windu? (laughs) (laughs) That's that's what I'm doing. I'm doing your jumbo with, with, with Mace Windu. And I'm just, it's, it's so much fun. It's such a blessing to be able to make solid, good money doing something that we do for free. Oh yeah. That's what a gift. My friend, John Rogers, who is the, the showrunner on Leverage. Oh, um, good show. Very good show. Used to say, like, I write for free. I get paid to take notes and to not stab executives in the neck. There you That's go. what the money is for. I like <laughs> it. Totally relate. We just that's did totally an episode actually. on notes. And, and yes, that's <laughs> what the money is for. <laughs> I, think that I, I would not at all mind, you know, making a comment, a little segue here at this mm-hmm. point. When you're talking about 
the skills that are necessary to navigate Hollywood, you're not just talking about the skills of writing something. Mm. You know, that's by itself. It's not just talking about the skills of taking that writing and putting it into screenplays or teleplays. It's understanding what the business is so that before you ever walk into that writer's room, this is one of the reasons I love Brian Fuller forever, because he put us in that situation. Where we had the opportunity to learn and demystify the process that what Tananari and I have done is listen to writers like Mark, to listen to people who will share their experience and, and not just, you know, we haven't talked an awful lot about craft here. This has all been about the business. Thank God. You know, that's, that's the thing that you can't get in, in, in most MFA programs. They can teach you how to write, but they can't teach you how to publish and they can't teach Mm -hmm. you how to get into Hollywood. So if you come to our screenwriting workshop on February the 15th, the 17th at www.screenwritingwebinar.com, you're going to get not just how to write and how to write for Hollywood, but how to stay sane and how to navigate, how to, how to strategize, how to get into the system, how to move it, move through the system, how to meet people, how to, you know, just in other words, how to create a protective shield around your heart. So that you can just have fun every day because the adult part of you, as we're using that metaphor, is taking care of business so yes. that you you get to enjoy the process. The opposite of this, frankly, is that your child is taking care of business and your adult is trying to do the writing. And that turns you into a hack. That, right. is, that is simply a path to self-destruction. Tanari, you, you, you had something you are about to say. I was just going to say it's the whole toolbox. As someone who is fascinated by Hollywood but didn't have the first clue how to get in, didn't know how to format a screenplay, I learned how to write screenplays from producers. I really want to reach out to those of you who are also in a similar situation, especially because, as Mark said, IP is so big right now. We just got an email from our manager last week. They're looking for short stories, what you got. If you're publishing, you've already got half a foot in the door because a producer might come to you. And when that happens, yeah, you can option it and get a little bit of money. Or if you know how to write scripts, you can get a script fee and that's a lot more money. So check it out at www.screenwritingwebinar.com. It's coming up February 17th. We've got a great class building up and uh, we, we look forward to seeing you there. Mark, is there anything you want to promote that you have coming out? Where can audiences find you on social media or any parting words? Well, I guess in the in the, in the plug arena, the aforementioned Star Wars Mace Windu miniseries, the first issue, the first episode, I'm going to call it an episode because why yes. not? The first issue drops on February 7th. That's, uh, and I don't know when this episode, this podcast oh, will it's go already out. dropped by the time this comes out. Yes, then it's already out. out. I hope out. that you loved it. And <laughs> every month from, from like every, every month on the Wednesday, whatever. I don't know when these things come out. I had a book that came out uh, late last year called Messenger, The Legend of Muhammad Ali, a graphic novel that, that I'd worked on for quite a, uh, a long time through first wow. second. Which, uh, yeah, no, it was it was a it was a labor of love that took about 10 years from the first email about to the release date of just breaking down Muhammad Ali's life into rounds. It's 10 chapters, 10 rounds. Oh, I guess each, round, each round was a challenge that he had to face. Some of them are literally like, in the ring. Some some of them are are not at all related to boxing whatsoever. Some of them are well-known. Some of them are completely surprising. One of them is completely made up, but, but it was trying to get the, the, the legend of the man, as opposed to the fact of the man, part of the, part of my introduction is like, do not read this in preparation for a test, like, because you're going to fail that test. This is not that book for you to use as a primary resource on anything. This is for you to understand kind of what he means. And to get there, we had to take some liberties. Now, I would like to ask a question that we we kind of skipped over. And that is, when you get spun, when you're being crushed by stress, how do you regain your balance? What do you use to keep yourself sane? The glib answer is bills. You know, people always ask me, it's like, do you have writer's blocks? Like, no, I got bills. <laughs> that, doesn't keep you, that doesn't keep you sane. That it doesn't keep you sane. It keeps you going. It keeps you You can burn yourself out like that. So what Absolutely. do you do or do you? I mean, do you have any kind of a ritual or things that you do when to how fat, you know, when you need to get back on the horse and you need to to recenter yourself? Or do you find yourself going back and working in a bad place and hurting yourself? I think that that. The, for me, the way I've been able to process 
the the slings and arrows that you absorb and have to be able to absorb in this business, in any business, really, but specifically a business that you are exposing your underbelly on a regular basis, because that's the coin of the realm. For me, it's being able to place it all in perspective in that of the things that I do, this is not the most important. What is the most you know, important? The most important thing that I do is I care for my family. Yes. You know, like I've got a I've got a special needs daughter who requires lots of care and lots of emotional you know sort of maintenance on my part. So you have clarity of your values. You know, like whatever happens to me in the world is not going to be as both triumphant and soul crushing as what might happen to me at home. Yes. And so being able to realize that okay, listen, that sucked was hoping for X, I got Y. I'm still going to go home and deal with this thing. And so this do thing, you do you take a pause and think about things? Do you journal, meditate, talk it out with friends? I I uh, I used to walk more than I do now. I do have a cluster of friends, fellow black nerds of lots of different stripes that sort of all get together and share our triumphs and our tragedies and and you know, the the thing that I discovered moving to LA that I didn't have in New York was fellowship is that like, there are so many of us here trying to do the same thing and various, various levels of success, but we are the only ones who know what this is like. Even if we are in competition with each other, we are also each other's support group. You know, we are the only ones we can really speak to about this. And How often so, do you get together? Every Sunday. That's wonderful. Oh my God. That's great. There that you is, go. I mean, that's, that's now, right there. Now, now we got it. That's it. So yeah. every Sunday. You have you that's it. fellowship. Fellowship and community, you know, and also understanding one's place in the ecosystem, you know, and and whether that means, you know, I I know that I'm pretty good at this. I have my good days and my bad days, but I know I'm pretty good at this. So I can take some solace and some comfort in that. I know that when I put down the pencil and the quill and the whatever and I go home, there are completely different responsibilities that I have um, that that supersede the work that I have to do. And then I I know that there have been victories. Like I've got a I've got a son who's in college, you know, and like I'm putting him there and I'm paying for him to go there, you know, and like I can, there's nothing that he wants for. And that has all been provided by this work, you know. And so I I can I can celebrate the wins, I can mourn the losses, and I can endure it all because I do him with family and with friends and with a community that that I love and hold very close to my heart. And with an audience that seems to respond to the work that I do. And I think that if all of those things are are aligned and operating, then then I then forward is not as difficult as backwards. Beautiful. That that's a good beautiful. that's a great place to stop. What, and uh, what's I your love website it. and your contact information? People want to reach you. I am at this point now, Instagram is the easiest way to go at Mark Bernardin, Mark with a C. I'm on Blue Sky and I'm on Threads. I, I know, abandoned but... Twitter because, you know, I just, I can't. But Instagram seems to be the direct place. I need to build a website and I understand this. I'm just, that's, that's the, like, the generational malaise speaking. It's like, I'm not going to learn that. <laughs> but anyway, you've got I your know. Star Trek bio yeah. out there. We, we were able to cobble <laughs> some stuff together on you. But anyway, we this has been great. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast. I hope you're as inspired audience as I have been during this conversation. So you need to go out and make yourselves the hero or heroine of your own story. The hero in the adventure of your lifetime. Bye-bye, everybody. You've been listening to the Life Writing Podcast. Join us next time for more conversations about creating the project of your dreams. For more information, go to lifewritingpremium.com and get ready to write for your life.